Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 45, A Death in the Family. On the morning of Christmas Eve, 1941, the four teams of the SAS moved out. Sterling and Patty started out together, but would later separate as they got closer to their targets. For Sterling, that was Surti, and for Patty Maine, that was Tammet. Sterling was hoping the third time was truly the charm. And as stated last time, Jacques-Louis and his team were en route to the airfield at Nophilia, with Bill Fraser and his making for Marble Arch Field nearby. For morale reasons, the men hardly ever said goodbye. It was usually, see you soon. But each man knew that every time they went out, there was a chance some of them would not make it back. It would be that way this time. As David and Patty moved out, the idea was to drop Patty off just outside Tammet first, then bring David back east a bit for Surti. But as they were hitting targets that probably still had everyone there on alert, decided to take a different route. This is where the long-range desert group navigator Mike Sadler came in. He had only joined the LRDG a little while back, but was simply a natural-born navigation whiz, soon to be seen as the best in the western desert. Yet his Achilles heel was the Italian maps they used. Only the Italians had covered this area before in their quest to rebirth the Roman Empire. Yet the results, well, as to the maps, were shoddy at best. No, the LRDG and the British military in general were starting at square one, which meant expanding their use of line overlap photography. But that took time, and had not yet been completed in this area. As Tammet was their goal, it was decided to enter the mouth of the Wadi Tammet, a large and lengthy ravine that started at the edge of that town, but then went south for miles into the desert. The further one went up the Wadi, closer to the town, the harder the surface, therefore better going for the trucks. So on went the six trucks, this time thankfully not seeing any Ghiblis overhead. During their first night into the desert, the wireless operator informed them that Rommel was still in retreat. He was abandoning Gazala and making for Agadabia, yet British intelligence did not think that was his final stopping point. From what they could tell, there was massive troop and armor building up at Aguila. That was where he was hoping to turn back the Allies. By 9 p.m. on their third night, they had reached their drop-off point for Patty, for him to hit Tammet. And now that they were closer to the coast, it was time to take David's group the 25 miles east to Surtey. Both groups believed that they could reach their target in the next few hours, so planned on a simultaneous attack at 1 a.m. However, two hours were lost getting the vehicles ready, as well as their weapons, should everything go to hell in a handbasket. So by the time David's group moved out for Surti, time was working against them. Navigator Sadler offered up the idea that, given the lateness of the hour, it would be faster and only slightly more dangerous to use the smooth coast road. Sterling, not wanting a strike three against him, agreed to this. 
So, turning out their lights of their three trucks, they turned and started for the coast road. But just as they were a few hundred yards away from the road, the ground under them began to shake. The trucks stopped. Their engines were turned off. Now they could all hear a roaring. It wasn't the ocean's waves. Walking up a bit ahead, Sterling and the others watched in amazement at a seemingly endless line of gigantic transport carriers with panzers on their backs roll past. By now, David's team had lost so much time that using the coast road was their only chance of succeeding with their mission. But first they had to wait for this armored parade to finish going by. This must have been the entire division they heard of, making for Aguila, the site of Rommel's defiant stand. David's team had come upon the coast road about 11.30. At 2 a.m., two and a half hours later, the carriers were still going by. Only at 3.30 a.m. did the last of the stragglers fly by, obviously trying to catch up with the main body. It was only then that David and company got back into their trucks and gained access to the road, going in the same direction. As the three trucks of the LRDG drove down the road, they passed by German or Italian tanks or armored vehicles. About 50 yards off the road were lines of tents. The guns of the SAS and the LRDG were ready, but no one challenged them. Everyone seemed determined to get some sleep. And of course, they all assumed there was no way Allied forces would just be driving by. Still two miles away from the airfield, the trucks pulled over, and David and his five men started walking the rest of the way. Their pace was fast because it was close to 4 a.m., and Holloman of the Desert Group told Sterling they would have to leave at exactly 5 a.m., with or without the SAS. There was no sense in everyone getting caught when the sun rose. But as David's group neared the airfield, his stomach dropped, as he could just make out thick barbed wire as far as the eye could see. Then they heard boots crunching gravel as they all dove to the ground. There was no way to cut the wire, approach, and then overtake the guard before an alarm was raised. But, not wanting to give up, Sterling decided to walk his men along the fence towards the coast road. Perhaps they could gain entrance at the main gate by stealth, if possible, or by force, if need be. Yet that turned out to be a no-go as well. The gate itself was heavily guarded, and they were ordered to identify themselves before getting anywhere near the entrance. David and his men slowly backed away, disappearing into the night. The guards, probably assuming they were nomadic trader or herdsmen, taking a gander at the camp, allowed them to go in peace. Frustrated but realistic, Sterling had the men double-time it back to the desert group's trucks. There was more than one way to skin a cat. Having all climbed aboard, David put his proposal to Holliman. As they had to meet up with Patty anyway, who was attacking Tammet to the west, why not dash along the coast road, shooting up whatever targets they passed by, before turning off into the desert for their rendezvous point? Holliman, who was just as frustrated at the seemingly waste of time of the last three days, quickly agreed. The men all moved into the back of the trucks, and released their safeties. 
Within minutes, they came upon their first target, some twelve equipment trucks with their drivers nearby, sleeping in tents. But as this was their first encounter, they decided to make the best use of it. Climbing down from their trucks, the members of the SAS planted their Lewis bombs on all twelve vehicles, then climbed back aboard. Getting back on the road, they all agreed that, as much fun as that was, it took too much time. Now the plan changed back to simply racing down the road, shooting up or launching grenades at everything within their reach. Sadly, the tanks were left alone because nothing they had could do any significant damage. And even though Holliman knew he was supposed to turn off the road by 5 a.m., he kept the deadly convoy moving 15 minutes past their deadline. Many vehicles were shot up, men were gunned down as they left their tents, chaos was left in their wake. Getting close to Tamit, the three trucks found the Wadi Tamit and took it south to meet up with Paddy Main and his group. The news from Tamit was much better than David's. Paddy and his team had no trouble getting to the plains. In fact, what stood before them, they would find out later, was that these 27 aircraft were part of a new squadron waiting to test itself against the Allies. They wouldn't get the chance anytime soon. This go-around, Paddy had decided to use time pencil fuses. They worked great in detonating the explosives, but their timing was not uniform. In fact, the first bomb went off eight minutes early. But Paddy, like Sterling, had learned a few things. Shooting up an officer's mess was a waste of time, enjoyable though it was. They were here to destroy airplanes. And that was what they focused on. So even though the first bomb prematurely went off, Paddy and company were done and were walking away. Again, the men celebrated their success and gave Sterling a hard time for being unable, once again, to hit Surti. The six trucks made for the headquarters. But this is where the jocularity stops. These men were in the middle of a war and were soon reminded of it. A few days after returning to Jalo, a single truck piled up with men pulled into the camp stopping in front of Sterling and Paddy as they rushed out to meet it. The single truck and the men riding on it and in it were all that was left of six trucks, two SAS teams and two LRDG teams. Morris of the LRDG had dropped off Jock Lewis and his team about 30 miles from Nophelia on Christmas Eve. By dawn of Christmas Day, they had come upon the airfield, but were disappointed to see so few planes. Still, they decided to hide out and destroy what they could that night. Everything was going according to plan until the first bomb, using a pencil fuse, went off prematurely. They had just placed bombs on the second plane. Still, the first plane was shattered, voices could be heard, followed by gunfire. The SAS men had no choice but to run away into the dark and make for their rendezvous point. Climbing up into their waiting trucks, the only thing to do now was to head for Marble Arch Field to pick up Bill Frazier and his team. Hopefully, they had better luck at the arch. But during the next morning, daylight had not yet come to full strength. An Italian Savoia flew over the trucks. It then turned around and made a straight line for the lead truck, its guns kicking out shells as fast as it could. 
Both teams fired back with what they had, but the plane seemed not to notice. As it came back for a third pass, its second attacking pass, the men jumped out of their trucks. Yet there was literally no place to hide. Still, the men ran away as fast as they could and tried to become one with the sand. It didn't work. On that third pass, Jacques Lewis was hit. The LRDG soldier, trained in field dressing, ran over and started doing what he could for Lewis. But it didn't matter. Jacques died not five minutes later. Soon the men could hear other planes coming, and they knew they weren't Allied aircraft. So the men scrambled further away from their trucks, which were destroyed in turn by the two newly arrived Savoyas. This strafing of their trucks and the surrounding area went on for eight hours. It was only darkness that made the Italians stop. Yet after all was machine-gunned and bombed, only one vehicle was completely destroyed. The rest were just badly shot up. And everyone besides Jacques was unharmed. So, using parts from the different trucks, one of the transports was made usable, barely, and they set off to the rendezvous point with Fraser's team. There might not be enough room, but the idea was to drop off supplies and let those men know help would be sent once they got back to Jallo. But upon arriving, Fraser's team was nowhere to be seen. The lone, overloaded truck waited as long as it could, but then it was decided best to head for headquarters, which in itself would be a miracle if the patched-up truck made it. Yet perhaps the universe decided it owed Sterling a miracle after taking Jacques from him, because the battered truck safely brought the men home. When David was told of the death, he felt it personally and professionally. Lewis was the man who took all of David's unconventional ideas and molded them for the men in uniform. He brought structure to David's erythral thinking, but also, simply, as a friend, Jacques would be missed. Sterling and the Long Range Desert Group had enough loss for one day, so another search party for Fraser's group was sent out. And unable to sit still, waiting for news from this latest search, David decided, as the SAS had destroyed 90 planes and numerous vehicles in just two weeks, it was safe enough to return to Cairo and face Auchinleck, take whatever licks were coming his way, but more importantly, ask for permission to recruit more men, but especially officers. He and Patty Maine were the only ones left. They all knew that the odds of Fraser and his four-man crew returning were not good. But again, Mars, the god of war, smiled on David. Fraser and his men did return to Jalo, but not until the second week of January, with an amazing story. Turns out, there was a miscommunication about the rendezvous point, which could never be allowed to happen again. Fraser and his men, having reached Marble Arch Field and finding it deserted, had walked dejectedly to their pickup point, the wrong point, and commenced waiting for the next six days. The thinking was the others had run into trouble, but surely someone would eventually come for them. Yet after almost a week, they were now low on food and had to choose between surrendering 
or making for the British line, some 200 miles away. The vote was unanimous. The men started out on their desert trek. On their second day of walking, with little water they had left swishing in their canteens, taunting them, they spied a small lake about six miles away. So, turning southeast, they made for the life-giving water, only to find it so salty as to be undrinkable. Still, something had to be done. So they tried distilling the water, only to find that they were losing more than they were gaining. Yet, not giving up, two of the men were told to stay there and continue on, while the rest made for a road a few miles off to see if there were any vehicles, which they could liberate at gunpoint any water. Luckily, a German truck was parked just off the road during the hottest part of the day. Fraser's men killed the surprised Germans and found two jerry cans full of water. The men replenished themselves that night. Yet that was it for fresh provisions for the next three days. The men grew weaker by the hour. On the third day, they walked upon a group of Italians setting up tents. There were too many of them to attack. Besides, the SAS men were too tired to charge at them. So instead, they circled around the Italians, who spotted them, but left them alone. It occurred to Fraser's men, with their ragged clothes and beards, they probably looked like locals, if not examined too closely, and they weren't about to give the enemy a chance. They sped up their pace as best they could. The next day, they came upon a group of Italian vehicles, and one of their number was off by itself a bit from the others. The men made for that truck. Jumping the relaxing Italians and quieting them down as quickly as they could, they told their new prisoners that they were part of an advance unit of the British 8th Army. By this time tomorrow, all Axis troops here would be captured or dead. The four Italian soldiers begged to be taken prisoner. While this was going on, one of the SAS men snuck around to the front of the truck and tried to drain the water from its carburetor. Yet the liquid was so filled with rust, it was undrinkable. Finding a bit of food, the men disappeared back into the desert, threatening the Italians with death if they raised an alarm. On their sixth day, they judged themselves to be somewhere between Mersa Breca and El Aguila. This was getting the men nowhere. So, deciding to sleep for the rest of the day, they would make for the coast road in the dark and overtake a truck going by. But it wasn't a truck that could handle the desert that became their temporary property, but a Mercedes-Benz, driving slowly along in trying to deal with the bumpy road. Overpowering the very young driver and his ranking officer, they all squeezed in and stayed on the coast road using the cover of the German car to bypass all checkpoints. Still, they must have made for a strange sight. Forty-five miles into their trip, they came upon the rest house at Mercer Brega, the very roadside building they had shot up not two weeks ago. Now, ten miles or so past that station, they had their driver turn into the desert. They had pressed their luck too far as it was. Yet not 15 miles into the desert, the Mercedes became stuck in soft sand. Still, at least now, they guessed they were about 40 miles away from the British line, so decided to walk the rest of the way. 
They allowed their German traveling companions to walk back to the coast road. But by the time they got there, the five SAS men planned on being well on their way. So motivated, they covered the distance in the next two days. Then, hearing a Cockney accent cussing, they rushed to it and were saved on January 10th. During all this, David was on his way back to Cairo, to Auchinleck. He needed more men, including officers, and a chance to put his new plans before the CNC. But he was waylaid by the Director of Military Operations, the very man who had strenuously tried to make sure David never got anywhere near Auchinleck. But now that they were face-to-face a second time, Sterling had his accomplishments to protect him. The DMO managed a mixture of hostility and politeness as he brought David to the commanding officer. But Auchinleck, well, he was all smiles. He shook David's hand and complimented him on his five-week-old beard and, of course, all of his successes. Then it was down to business. What was next for the SAS? David first complimented the commander on his own success. Politics is ever-present, but then used that very success to set up his next phase of activity for helping out in the desert war. As Rommel's forces were expected to completely evacuate Benghazi in the next 48 hours, this would force the Axis to establish a new supply route. And from what David could learn, it seemed likely that the port town of Borat, some 350 miles to the west, would be that new supply base. So, simply put, David proposed that the SAS head to Borat and destroy all they could there. Ships, transport vehicles, tankers, anything they could sneak their Lewis bombs onto. Auchinleck, to his credit, did not react. He probably thought, oh well, I'm about to lose the whole SAS team. But then he thought about the 90 Axis planes that his men did not have to face in battle because of this man. And really, the CNC had nothing to lose besides these few more men, which, not to be cruel, when thousands were already dead, what was a few dozen more? Besides, the potential, as before, was just too good to pass up. Auchinleck replied, How many more men do you need? David, countered by playing his own game, said casually, No more than a dozen. But he also wanted to get a man, an officer, from the special boat section. As they were about to attack a port, it would be helpful to have a man who knew his way around that world. That, too, was given the green light. Auchinleck then asked how soon before the SAS could attack Borat. David, without missing a beat, said, about the middle of the month. This caused the CNC's poker face to flush. They were already a few days into January now. Auchinleck, recovering, realized that David had already started making his plans. This, too, the commander was okay with. David then quickly added that he had to attack when there was no moon, which meant they only had until the middle of the month, hence his speed. The general let this pass and nodded his head. And it was the CNC that got to deliver the last shock of the meeting. As David was at the door, Auchinloch let him go with the statement that, from now on, he was Major Sterling. 
David spent the next seven days or so in a whirlwind of gathering intelligence and looking for men. He used his brother Peter's apartment in Cairo as his headquarters. Proving that change comes slow to the military, David was still getting some pushback from certain elements in Cairo, but he soon discovered a unit of free French of about 50 men recently arrived from Syria. They were just sitting around doing nothing due to a lack of supplies. But that was not currently a problem David was having, so got permission to recruit the lot. Now, they just had to be trained. But David was not the man for that. So, knowing it would make him angry, never a good thing, David wired Patty Maine to come to Cairo and bring these men up to speed. Patty grumbled, but made his way east. One of David's new recruits, not of the Free French Unit, was a British officer named Fitzroy McLean. After his training, David planned on using McLean to help with intelligence. But for now, the two men approached the Air Force to let them know that the SAS would be targeting Borat during the night of January 23rd and 24th, 1942. The Air Force replied, well, we were going to hit that same port that same night because there would be no moonlight. But if the suddenly famous SAS wanted a crack at it, fine by them. The RAF would hit the port the next night of the 24th and 25th. But the SAS was warned. That was a firm date. The bombers were coming over no matter what happened to Sterling's men. With that out of the way, David and McLean then spoke to Peter Oldfield of the Air Reconnaissance Unit. Oldfield, once the situation was put before him, enthusiastically agreed to help. In fact, before the year was out, Oldfield would join the SAS. Showing Sterling his latest photos of Borat, Peter pointed out two oil tankers, vital to Rommel. The bad news was that the port's facilities under Rommel's command had the transfer of oil down to just 48 hours. It was unlikely those tankers would be there by the time the SAS showed up. But the good news was, after the latest developments of the war in North Africa, Borat was seemingly becoming Rommel's chief storage location. If that were true, a major attack on Borat would turn out to be a major blow at the Desert Fox's ability to wage war. Yet, this was speculative. It all had to be confirmed. But this took time. David replied with, Could you radio me by January 21st, whether I'm wasting my time or not? whether this was just a raid or an attack on Rommel's main fuel depot. Oldfield replied he would do everything he could to contact him by the 21st. But what Sterling did not know, could not know, was that by January 21st, as he and his team were about to sneak into Borat under the cover of darkness, the long-range desert group's wireless truck and its three radio operators would be the victims of bombing. The truck destroyed, the three men killed. Sterling wouldn't know where to plant his bombs, or was this Rommel's new main supply base, and if so, where were the vital oil depots? 
Greetings, everyone. So just wanted to let you know that the completely random drawing of the coffee mug winner, you can have FDR or Churchill, whichever one you like, is Michael Day from Montague, California. So, Michael, congratulations. Just send me an email to uh, World War II WWII podcast at gmail.com, and I'll get that out to you just as soon as I can. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. I really do appreciate it, and I'll see you soon with the next episode about Greece.